Welcome to another episode of Before You Kill Yourself with your host, Leo Flowers. Today joining me is author, entrepreneur, technologist, philanthropist, business investor, and writer, John Roa, who's here to talk about his new book, A Practical Way to Get Rich and Die Trying. Specifically, we talk about his panic attacks, bouts with depression, drugs, alcohol, his addiction to excess, and also undergoing an identity crisis after selling his business. And of course, we, as we do with every episode, we share practical tools and techniques for how he recovered and regained his mental health. You can always go to thrivewithleo.com for one-on-one coaching with yours truly. If you're struggling with transitions, tragedies, or traumas, and with that said, Let's get into the episode. I love it, man. I'm excited to talk to you, uh, author of A Practical Way to Get Rich and Die Trying. That's a that's a great title. <laughs> Thank you. Tell me about the die trying part. Yeah, man. Um, well, it's, it's a crazy story, and I didn't want to sanitize any part of the journey, and that's kind of why I called it that, and it's why I wrote it how I did, which is a very kind of out in the open kind of visceral take on success. I think when we are, when we're shown success stories, especially when it comes to tech entrepreneurship, which is kind of the, the golden era of today, we're often shown very kind of whitewashed perspectives of what really happens because people are a bit afraid to talk about the real struggles that we go through and all the stigmatized topics, especially in tech entrepreneurship today, we, we hear a lot of success stories and we hear them either through the media or through people who are telling their own story through, you know, through biographies or memoirs, or we hear them, you know, told after a disaster. And those are stories like Fire Festival or Theranos or whatever. Um, but any way that we're told a success story, we're normally not told the real story. And that's either because people are afraid to share their real story because, you know, they can be a lot messier and a lot kind of more dire than we ever think. And they're topics that are tough to talk about, like mental health and substance abuse and whatever. Or um, people try to over-dramatize them. And that's where we get stories like Steve Jobs and Zuckerberg or Theranos or whatever, where they're made to be these kind of spectacle stories instead of digging into why we as entrepreneurs feel this way. So in my story, I... I started at you know this this tech company that, that the book details when I was 26 years old. Um, I had a little bit of experience trying you know to start companies, but but no real uh, business or tech experience outside of that. And um, worked very hard, right place, right time. Had a good idea, good team, and the company worked. But along the way, I struggled a lot, which is incredibly common amongst entrepreneurs and. I'm guessing your listeners, a lot of them are self-starters, and it's never as easy, clean, or graceful as we want it to be. And so I experienced the whole kitchen sink of issues. Um, I started to you know, deal with an unconscionable amount of stress and, and you know, risk I was taking, kind of burnout and anxiety. It led to some pretty severe mental health issues. Um, I was deeply, deeply depressed. I was dealing with all sorts of you know, anxiety issues. And then as the company started working, it all started compounding and compounding. I started then dealing with all my issues in the in the absolute wrong way, which was um, drug, sex, and rock and roll, basically, you know, to, to just try to offset the, the damage that I was doing to my mind and body. And um, 
And, you know, for anybody who's ever tried that strategy, it doesn't work that well. And it normally, you know, catches up with you. And in my case, it caught up with me in the form of a severe mental breakdown. Um, I ended up hospitalized for multiple days. I suffered disassociative amnesia. Um, I had severe memory loss. Um, they thought I had suffered a stroke. And I almost died. I, I, was, I was closer to being dead than I was alive for that week. And um, and that level of burnout for me was I felt like the first and only person who has gone through it. I have now come to learn that, that it is more common than we ever let on. And despite coming out of that and being able to sell the company, you know, make my money and, and kind of retire, you know, by the age of 31, um, I still dealt with a lot of lingering effects. It was it was a very rough ride and it gave me a lot to think about in the years after. And what became most important to me was to talk about the entire story, was to talk about what we deal with, why we deal with it, what makes entrepreneurs so susceptible to this stuff, why the statistics around, you know, people that are entrepreneurs who have 60% more mental health issues than the average person. We are, you know, um, have four times more divorce, uh, substance abuse issues, et cetera, um, People have eight times more bipolar, six times more depression. I mean, all these stats. And I wanted to figure out kind of why and then to tell my story as a way to set an example that we should be able to talk more about these topics. So the die trying is is because I, I literally almost did die trying. A part of me I still feel like did. I became a very different person after that whole experience. But ultimately, you know, I, I want I wanted to share the true version of one of these roller coaster success stories. Man, and I know people who are, they are just pushing themselves to the limit. They are, you know, trying to get rich or trying to become successful and, and, and willing to die. I have a friend who uh, was in a hospital. He had COVID. Like he was on the precipice of, of losing his, he was married, two kids, and was on the very verge of, of dying. And yeah. it was because he was, he was pushing himself. Like he was traveling. I, mm -hmm. I know in the book you talk about, traveling to like a hundred different countries in like 101 days or something like that. It was something <laughs> insane. And, and, and as soon as he got better, he's right back on a plane. So yeah. I love that in the book, you talk about how entrepreneurs are, are, are born that way. Can you talk about like what those, uh, what those elements are and, and what those characteristics are? Yeah. And it's funny because, you know, the, the term entrepreneurship is so common today. It's, it's so common. It's almost become like, the baseline of our lexicon, especially in America, we entrepreneurs dictate everything. We, we are the celebrities. We are the rock stars. We are the billionaires. It's it's a bit crazy, to be honest, because that wasn't the case even a couple uh, generations ago. Our, our grandparents didn't think of entrepreneurs that way. Entrepreneurs used to be inventors. They were the Henry Fords and the other people and the Edisons who who created things. And those so happened to kind of become businesses. Now it's become this in vogue concept of, you know, kind of get rich quick. It's kind of the new gold rush, right? Back in the 1850s, with during the actual gold rush, people that were opportunistic and wanted to, to make a bunch of money as fast as possible, they'd obviously head west. They'd try to find gold. And they pretty much knew they were going to come back rich or in a coffin. That was pretty much the trade-off, right? You, you didn't just kind of like – you know, miss and then pivot. You either got rich or you died. That was the gold rush, basically. And what's crazy is that, you know, 150 years later, we are still kind of in that mindset in this new tech Silicon Valley, how big and fast can we do this instead of being inventors? And so 
But when I was a kid, that really wasn't how it, I'm 36 now. So I grew up in, you know, kind of eighties, nineties. And, and we had some entrepreneurs, we had the, you know, Steve jobs and Bill Gates and some of these tech guys and Richard Branson, they, they were the, the icons of that era when it came to tech, but it wasn't as common as it is now. And so I never even knew the term entrepreneur existed. I didn't have any entrepreneurs in my family. I, d- I didn't, I didn't, you know, go to do a career day and say, I'm going to be an entrepreneur. I just am the, the type of mind that loves solving problems and willing to take a risk to do so and want to push myself and be in control of my own future as much as possible. Those are the characteristics that I have. And those are the ones that happen to make people entrepreneurs. And so after I sold the company and I had a lot of time to reflect on what the hell had just happened, I started to ask myself, like, why did I do this? <laughs> why did I want to risk my life and sanity and future for a business? Why, where did this drive come from? Because like, is this how I was born? Is this how I was made? Did I watch or learn something that made me want to go do this? And I spent quite a bit of time researching it and very thankfully meeting people who are far smarter and more educated than me who have spent their sometimes lives researching this exact topic. And, and one of which, and I'll use this to answer your question, one of which is a guy named Michael Freeman, Dr. Michael Freeman. And he is a brilliant um, uh, psychologist and psychiatrist out in California in Silicon Valley. So he was actually a CEO at one point before going into clinical work. And he has spent 6,000 hours in clinical therapy with entrepreneurs. So arguably, nobody in the world understands us better than this man. And he's become a friend of mine. And we talk all the time. We talked earlier today. And and I've asked him the question, like, like from his perspective, are we born or made? Like, why do we do this? And, and and like most people who have thought a lot about this, and there's multiple other than Dr. Freeman, is that this really is a, a biological affliction. And I use the word affliction because it's not necessarily a good thing. We are predisposed to be entrepreneurs the moment we come out of the womb. We're the ones who were hustling lemonade stands at age five. And, you know, in my case, you know, selling burn CDs out of backpacks in middle school and just any way to hustle and grind and to, and to do things and make money. And that's our mindset. And there's very few entrepreneurs that you can't track them back to being like five years old when they figured out that this is how their mind works. The problem is it's so accessible today to then take that and kind of like like bet the farm on this pursuit. That wasn't always the case. Now it's like anybody can create a fucking app or, or whatever and be an entrepreneur and normally – it's at a very young age. It's without a lot of support, not a lot of education, not a lot of guidance, mentorship, or you know, the structure to keep you healthy through it. And that's why we've ended up with all these dire kind of outcomes. So my whole thing is like for, for the people like me, the true entrepreneurs out there, and I don't say that as necessarily a compliment. I, I look at it kind of like almost like a handicap. Like you got to understand what you're dealing with and then figure out how to survive it. But if you're one of those my mission today is to make it so you don't have to bet your existence and your potentially your life or your happiness or your future to succeed in this game. And, and I think that's really important that we, we make it a much more healthy pursuit than it is today. I love that. And, you know, you talked about the, the biological, the genetic, you know, you're born this way. Yeah. There, uh, Dr. Robert Sapolsky wrote this book called Behave. And he, he addressed all uh, behaviors from a, a genetic, hormonal, environmental, evolutionary perspective. 
And so I, I guess my question for you then is, what do you think happened in your childhood or how were you raised that you think contributed to how you, you know, because there's a combination of nature nurture, right? There's, mm-hmm. you, you have yeah. the, the predisposition, but then the environment has to uh, allow you to express yourself in the way that you're genetically attuned to. So what was it from your childhood that you, that you felt like contributed to, uh, you know, your drive and, and, and the way you turned out? Well, you know what, Leo, it's actually probably the opposite for me. And this is why I'm so much in the biology nature camp is because my father was an immigrant from Venezuela. So he came over to, to, to education for, for college education and then met my mom and, and, and stayed. And he was an engineer and worked in the auto industry for 25 years. My mom was a stay at home mom when we were kids. And then she became a nurse and a teacher. So to, to say that there was no entrepreneurship in my family is an understatement. I mean, like we, this is the opposite of self-started. This is my, my parents worked in kind of corporate nine to five ish jobs for a for their whole careers. My dad still does. Um, so I, I didn't have a model of what entrepreneurship was and neither did my parents. And so once I started saying like, I want to figure this out on my own, I, I don't need high school. I'd rather start a business. They didn't know what the hell to do with me. And they honestly thought, and, and I don't blame them for this because I think I would as a parent at that point too, they were like, our kid is doomed. Right. And they fought me. They fought me on this. They, they did not promote me being an entrepreneur. They did not endorse it. They did not support it because they didn't understand it because they, they had no model to go from. So I, I fought tooth and nail against everyone, parents, teachers, coaches, anybody that had kind of guidance over me as a, as a forthcoming adult, I had to battle in my pursuit for entrepreneurship, but it was so ingrained inside of me. I couldn't, I couldn't get away from it. And I, I'd stop once in a while and think like, Maybe I'll just get a job. Maybe maybe I'll just go work for some tech company and do sales or something. And every time I tried or every time I'd interview, I would either talk myself out of it knowing I, I would hate it or a couple of times I got kind of shitty jobs, like entry-level jobs, and I didn't last more than you know a short amount of time because I just I, – I hated having a boss. I hated not being in control of my life. I hated to ask permission to solve a problem. And so – you know, there wasn't, frankly, a lot in my nurture that that's that, you know, kind of pushed me towards entrepreneurship. It was, for me, kind of very nature based. And, and that's what a lot of the studies have shown. Dr. Freeman's studies There's also a gentleman from Harvard. His name's escaping me. I, I reference him in the book that, that he has figured out. It's like, you know, kind of 80, 20 nature to nurture. So it, it is something baked deep down inside of us, but then we have to find our own opportunities to, to kind of fulfill that, that vision. Well, I would imagine that, you know, having a, you know, fight your parents, teachers, all these, you know, all these adults around you and people who are supposed to quote unquote, love you. Uh, that had to be, uh, I, I would feel a little angry that you guys aren't supporting my dream, my vision that you're not on board. And then also, I would imagine you felt a little lonely of like, am I the only one that sees this and feels this way? And like, why aren't you guys on board? Was there any of that? Absolutely. The, the loneliness is a very common um, characteristic of entrepreneurship. It is a very lonely journey at the best of times. Um, and the isolation it can create is, is something that you hear about a lot when entrepreneurs talk openly, even for people who have loving support systems or spouses or, or whatever, they talk about the, the isolation of being an entrepreneur. Um, because at the end of the day, 
unless you have like a business partner or something like that, very few people are going to truly understand. They might support, but to truly understand what you're dealing with every day and why you're why you're up all night and you can't sleep and all these circling thoughts and ideas or problems or, or whatever you're dealing with is very difficult to communicate. And in a lot of times, we are the worst at communicating it. So even people that would be more than happy to listen and could probably help us, we choose to just kind of bury it down instead of sharing it, which creates more isolation and loneliness. So, you know, I was definitely a loner most of my life and my career. And, and that and that created tons of of those issues I spoke about earlier. Um, I never felt that close to anybody. And, and I felt like the first and only person to deal with what I was dealing with. And, and that's kind of, you know, again, going back to this platform that I'm working on, on changing or creating, which is we need more support mechanisms for people like me and, and other entrepreneurs in the world to, to find like-minded people that they can um, confide in, that they can seek support from, where there's not going to be judgment for the decisions that they've made or, or situations they've got themselves in. And we need to allow a lot more vulnerability amongst people who are self-starters because it can be epically lonely. And that can lead to some of these just completely tragic outcomes like you know the suicide rate amongst entrepreneurs, which is about four times the national average. Yeah. In the book, you, you talked about the, uh, the number of friends who, and I hate to use the word backstabbed, but, you know, people who you thought that you went into business with people who you thought were also your friends. And then yeah. for them to like take the the, uh, the company from you, I, I forgot what the first company was as a kid and he, him and his dad were like, nah, uh, you actually didn't sign any of the papers. Uh, we own it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I wanted to, I want to find that guy. I want to hunt that guy down. I want to hunt him down and his father. Right, right. And, 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 you know, I'm not going to say all the things I was thinking, but, yeah. but I was upset and that happened to you a couple times. And I would imagine yeah. that every time that happens, that you, it becomes harder and harder to trust people and harder and harder not to look at people as objects is like, you know, you're, you're just a, a thing that helped me achieve this and, and it, 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 it isolates you more. And so it's like you're you, you're almost numbing yourself because you did put your heart out there. It's not like you were born this cold. I, it was just like uh, the, the amount of yeah. betrayal that has to happen for you to get to where you were uh, has to leave a scar. Absolutely. And, and that was very well said because it, it, it does chip away at you and, and it chips away because. You know, I, I'm a very uh, empathetic person. You know, I think my mom is probably the most sensitive human being in the world. So I grew up in an environment with a lot of, you know, kind of emotional um, support. You know, like, like I mean, we, we spoke openly about our feelings as a family. We, we, got, we had a very tight-knit, you know, family when I was a kid. So I was used to trusting people. I was used to, to assuming people were good and had my best, you know, intentions in, in their heart. Um and when I'd have a, a friend or whatever, I, I inherently trusted them. And, and so, you know, you referenced a couple of times early in my life. The first was at age 16, turning 17. The second was at age 21, where I was screwed the first time royally, the second time pretty bad, out of business pursuits by people that I inherently trusted. And what it did to me was it made me realize that business is not this kind of familial, friendly sparring match. Business is a fucking war. 
And it hardened me with that mindset. And that's not a nice lesson to learn at that age, right? Like you shouldn't be that hardened when you're 21 years old. You should still be kind of, you know, stars in your eyes, like the world's all a good place. Um, now, it, it led me to be a lot more pragmatic in my later businesses and ultimately become more successful. But it also made me a cold-hearted fucking bastard. And like when I ran Okta, which was my, my biggest company, the, the one that the book um, covers in detail – you know, I was, I was not fun to work with. I was not fun to work for. I would, I, I didn't, I didn't really care that much about my employees as human beings because I was like, well, you know, at this point, this is a battle and, and I'm being sued by that client and this employee is quitting and screaming. You know, so I was like, fuck all you people. I'm going to, I'm going to do what I need to do for me. And I'm going to look at this as instead of my baby, I'm going to look at this as a cold, dark piece of steel. I got to push uphill until I get to the top. And it, it sounds awful, but I think if you talk to a lot of entrepreneurs who have been through the gamut, that is kind of where a lot of us end up. And when you hear these stories of just toxic work environments and brutally, you know, you know, tough CEOs and stuff, even, you know, the Steve Jobs stories that came out after his passing of just how awful he was to work for, I hear those, I'm like, yeah, I, I get it. <laughs> I, I, I totally get it because, you know, th this is this is no longer a game. This is now a battle. You know, what was interesting about your story is as much uh, of the drugs you talked about doing it. You didn't sound like a, a drug addict. Mm. Um, it, it, it sounded more uh, like a, a coping mechanism, which I know, which is what drug addiction is on some level. But it, it didn't sound like you like it was um, uh, at the uh, at the behest of, of the work you were trying to do. It didn't seem to interfere with what you were trying to get done. It seemed like a, a, a thing that you had managed. But when you did do it, it was almost like a binge kind of thing, like it yeah. was intermittently. Are you still struggling with uh, any type of uh, drugs now? Well, I'm not. And I appreciate you asking, Leo. And it's a you 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 caught on to what I was hoping the readers would get out of that part of the book, because there's you know, the concept of addiction is obviously multifaceted and very complicated. And what I've realized since, because at the time you can't appreciate any of this, you can only appreciate it in retrospective as you look back on your life and decisions that you made. I looked at all of these things, all these excessive consumptions, be it drugs, drinking, sex, partying, whatever the, the, the thing was, they were ways for me to escape my current situation, even for just a little while. And it literally didn't matter what it was. And, and there was actually a line in the book that I think the editors pulled out because I was trying to be silly during a quite serious chapter. But I was like, if I could have, you know, if, if I knew that dressing up as like Big Bird and dancing down the street would have stopped my anxiety, I would have been doing that all day long. You know what I mean? Like it didn't matter what it was. Just the easiest access for me to remove myself from my situation were those substances and, and, and that behavior. And so when I'd go to like a place like Las Vegas, which is a main character in the book, um, it, it was easiest to me to just imbibe in all of those things and just pretend that nothing else existed. And if I could remove myself for even a few hours or a day, then, you know, again, it, it all came back the moment I came back to work. But for that day, I didn't need to deal with it. And, and that was my coping mechanism. 
And that is a very shitty coping mechanism. Like that is not what we should be doing, but that's all I had. I didn't know what else to do. And so the, the very, the thing that I'm very fortunate of is that I am not, I don't have an addictive personality and I don't actually get addicted to things. If I did, I'd probably have been dead a long time ago because I did all of the things that you would become addicted to. And so like, I haven't done, you know, uh, any kind of party drug since I sold the company and, and like, I, I, I just stopped and then haven't thought about them again. I, I haven't needed to do those. I still, I'm drinking a glass of wine right now, but like it's one glass of wine and that's my evening, you know? So I, I'm very lucky and very fortunate to not have that characteristic or else I would have ended up another statistic, like a lot of my entrepreneurial, you know, colleagues. So Brother, you're so lucky. I can't have a glass. I want the bottle. I don't even want the bottle. <laughs> I, I always, I, know, I just want more. Have you seen that that movie? Right. Um, a a million. It was about Paul J. Getty, and mm, uh, yeah, he yeah, was like yeah, the, yeah, he yeah. had the he had all the money in the world, and there was a scene where Mark Wahlberg says, "How much money do you need?" And he said, "More." And I was like, yeah. "Ooh." <laughs> I guess well, I am well, with cookies. I'll tell you something. <laughs> I'll tell you something, Leo. It, it's interesting because the one thing I do have is I am drawn towards excess. And this is why I did a lot of those things because excess makes me feel good. But the thing is, is it's, no, it's not the chemical. Like it wasn't the cocaine. It was doing a bunch of cocaine. It wasn't that I loved or was addicted to sex. It was that like having sex with a bunch of women was really fun and it took me away from it. So it was always chasing excess for me because excess made me feel good. So I've had to continually, and a lot of this comes with maturity and growing older and stuff. I think you lose a little bit of that when you're in your twenties and you're making money, it's a lot easier to chase excess. And, and, but I've had to work on that because I've had to work on being content with like a lot, but not too much or, or, or settling for something that's fine instead of like the best. And, and that's been a bit of a journey for me. So it's a nuance and, and it sounds like addiction, even though it's a different form because I was never addicted to the chemical or the act. I was addicted to the excess of this of doing those things. And that's something that I've worked on for years since the time of the book. And I still work on today. As, as a matter of fact, my, my last call before you tonight was with my therapist. And this is something we visit every week. And we talk about how, you know, with whatever I'm doing, whether it's business or personal or, or relationships that, that I'm, that I constantly need to work on my, my need for excess and, and frankly do away with my need for excess. Man, what I love about that, John, is that you got to the essence of your addiction, you know, uh, where some people think they're addicted to alcohol, but it could be uh, to dopamine. And it doesn't have to be. Exactly. It could be a yeah. million other things. And so you yeah. got to the essence, and that's when you, you really start to see people change and um, and, and start to, to grow afterwards. You know, I would imagine because you sold your company, your baby, uh, at the, what was it, were you 30? You were 29 when you sold it, right? No, no, I was I was 30... 30, turning 31 when I sold it. So you sold it, you got retirement money now. Was there a grieving period? Because we know that for people who retire and is usually at 65, uh, a lot of them don't handle that very well. Were you able to transition after you sold it or was there a grieving period uh, as you look back? 
Well, the, the grieving period for me wasn't the, the traditional one of like my baby's gone. Because I kind of said earlier, this wasn't my baby, right? I, I had learned to not treat this business as my baby. And so it wasn't a grievance of like the business is gone. It, what was gone was the biggest stressor in my life. And so overall, I, I now had money, which I'd never had in my life, which, which changes things, not always in a good way, but, you know, I, I have to add. And also my biggest stressor was gone. And so I was hopeful that I, I would kind of wake up a new man and kind of go, okay, like life is good now. I can now go do whatever I want. What happened to me was two different things. The first was that my, my kind of grieving became from my identity disappearing. I identified as an entrepreneur and a CEO of Okta for all my formidable years. People knew me as that. People respected me because of that. I was invited to things. I was, you know, photographed for things. I like my, my identity was that role. So when that was gone, I, I'll never forget the day because Salesforce bought my company. Um, I worked for Salesforce for a short period of time and then I left. And so, you know, the, between Okta, my company and Salesforce, Everything that I had was kind of in those companies. And so when they when they went away, my last day, I, I tell this story very rarely, but I, I had to kind of give up my laptop and my cell phone. And then I, I announced I was I was leaving the companies. And then we had a, a party to kind of, you know, to, to send me off. Then I woke up the next morning and I literally had nothing like I didn't have a computer. I didn't have a cell phone. I didn't have a calendar with, with meetings on it. I didn't have an assistant calling me. I, I had I had nothing. And it was one of the strangest mornings of my life. And it was first a very freeing feeling. It was first like, holy crap, I mean, this is literally a new world. But there were two things that that took that away very quickly. Number one is you then say to yourself, well, what the fuck do I do now? Like, what do I literally do? I don't, no one cares where I am. No one is asking where I am. No one's asking to see me or talk to me or meet me or anything. So what is my life? What is my day? Like, what do I literally go do right now? And the second thing, which was far worse, was that all of these issues I spoke about earlier between the mental, the physical, et cetera, they, they now had carte blanche. They had free range to come up and, and bubble up to the surface. I had no, I had no, you know, kind of excuses that was holding them down and suppressing it. So I fell into a deep depression as all of the mistakes, all of the decisions that I'd made for years kind of came rushing to the forefront. And I was, I was a bit of a mess and I had to, I ended up, um, under medical care with a, with an amazing doctor in Chicago for about six months, um, working on my body and mind, trying to recover from, from all the damage that I'd done over the last five years. And so, you know, there, there was a lot of, it was a very, it was the single weirdest period of my life after selling the company. And it took a long time to reconnect people I loved and kind of say to them, I'm sorry, I've been gone for five years. I'm back now. <laughs> like, what did I miss? And do you, and do you, will you still kind of let me in and let me, let me come back from what I just did? Um, it took a lot of kind of asking myself, well, what, what matters now? Um, wh what do I want to be? What do I want to do? What do I want to, you know, like what is my life and what is going to dictate it for the next number of years? There were some big, challenging times ahead. And, you know, all the money in the world doesn't change that. It doesn't make any of that easier. In fact, it makes a lot of it harder because money was not in the equation. I'd always been driven by 
by necessity. I never had any money. I grew up in a you know low to mid income household with an immigrant you know family and whatever else. And so this was all. I never worked to not need money to to buy food to pay rent. I needed to work, and all that that goes away. And you're like, well, what do I do now? And and you're 31, so it's not like your friends can relate, right? Your friends are usually just getting into their careers at that point. You know, like nobody else can relate to this and everyone else is working their asses off. So if you go sit on a beach somewhere, it's like, you're going to be sitting there alone because no one's going to come do that with you. And so it, it, it's a, it's a, it was a very, very strange transition. Um, and, and frankly, one that I'm in a way still working on, but it's something that I, uh, you know, I, I didn't see coming. I'm glad it did. Uh, and, and I got, I got very fortunate with having people around me willing to, to walk me through that despite me, frankly, not being a great, you know, friend, brother, et cetera, during those, those times. Damn. It's like starting all over again. My goodness. Yeah. So yeah. talk to us about, because you, you talked about, uh, Dr. Freeman and the work that he did as a psychotherapist. Uh, and yeah. I know we only have a few minutes left. So so pl- please go into as much detail as uh, in terms of what were the steps to help you? Because you said you were, you were uh, you know, in treatment for six months, you know. Mm-hmm. And so what were those steps? What were the things that you learned and what are you still learning in terms of your mental health? What, what's what's gotten you back to uh, a 100? Yeah. So the, the initial six months was with a guy um, in Chicago named Dr. Alex Paziotopoulos. And he, I met him through happenstance. Just uh, I was, you know, in a really weird place in my life. And, and there was a friend of mine who was working with him. She recommended I go speak to him. And I did. And, and this was a time. And again, I, I've sold the company. I have my money. I, I'm, I'm free and clear. I couldn't walk down the street. I had like a mini panic attack. I couldn't sleep through the night. I, I was a mess. And I kind of saw him and, and he was like, yeah, you're, you're a mess. I mean, like it was quite obvious. And, um, and I, I went through six months of treatment with him, uh, focused on, I mean, my body and mind. So for the mind side, it was things like neurofeedback and biofeedback and, 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 you know, kind of getting all my, my internal kind of levels back up with supplements and doing high dose ketamine therapy. I mean, all sorts of stuff to try to fix the damage that I had done. Um, I was also separately doing, you know, um, psychotherapy and talk therapy and different things to try to work out all my stuff. And then the the third kind of leg of it was, um, relationship kind of recovery. And so going back to friends and family and, and, and trying to reform what I had lost. And so that was kind of that six month period. Dr. Freeman is somebody that's a newer kind of friend and acquaintance of mine. And, and he's the, the researcher who's been, who, who's probably the, I'm guessing that the preemptive voice in the world around mental health and entrepreneurship. And he runs a foundation called, or a company called Econa, E-C-O-N-A. I think it's econa.net. And they do like um, kind of wellness seminars and support groups for entrepreneurs and for people like me. So him and I are, are co-authoring an op-ed. I'm, I speak on Econa. So so these are, you know, so, so I'm really trying to kind of intersect with people that that have figured out more about me than I know about myself. Um, but, but there was, there's been a lot of work. And like I said, it, it continues. I mean, like I said, I, I just talked to my therapist before I talked to you tonight and I, I do that every single week, no matter where I am. Um, it's really important to me to have somebody I can speak to in an unbiased format about whatever's going on in my life. Um, 
and and I've I've become very aware of my strengths and weaknesses, um, especially my weaknesses. And I I work every day on being more stable, more healthy, a better son, brother, friend, um, all those things. Well, continue figuring out what makes life meaningful to me and, and what I want going forward and those kind of things. Now, I'm fascinated by the relationship component of your, uh, you know, wellness program. W- was there a, like a script? Was it just like, hey, guys, I screwed up. Uh, you know, will you take me back? <laughs> or was there were, were there some things that you intentionally had to include uh, in terms of rebuilding those relationships? It, it was it was both. Um, you know, there were there were people who might not have understood what I was dealing with, but especially when the company was sold and all of a sudden they, there was kind of a retrospect, right? They're, they're reading the news articles and the headlines. They're like, holy shit, this is what you've been doing for five years. So I think people inherently understood that it wasn't that I was just trying to be a dickhead and I was trying to ignore them or, or not give them, you know, my time or, or my whatever that, you know, we're, we're pretty quick to say like, kind of welcome back and tell me what happened and, and, and don't do that again. Kind of thing. There were others that, you know, that I, I had to work pretty hard to make amends with. And, and some, it didn't work. You know, I, I lost people through the journey. Uh, I was dating a pretty awesome girl named Courtney when I started the company. And we were great together. And um, and frankly, we should have, we probably should have been together forever if I if I went back and, and you know think about it. And I broke up with her. And my excuse was, this business is too important. This business is too much of my time and focus. I can't do both. I can't be a great boyfriend and a CEO, which is of course ridiculous, right? Most, you know, most powerful CEOs in the world have spouses and partners. Um, so my thesis was just hogwash, but I still, that's what I told her. And it was probably out of insecurity and fear of what I was about to go through. Um, and her and I never re- reconciled our, our, our anything. We're not friends today. We don't speak today. You know, those kind of things. And so, you know, you, you there is collateral damage with all of this. But, you know, I, I was lucky that I have an incredible family and core group of friends that did allow me to kind of, you know, come back from this. Do you still get panic attacks? And, and if not, what were some of those things that uh, and I know you talked about the biofeedback and the psychotherapy. But for the listeners who can't get uh, immediate access to that, somebody who might be struggling yeah. right now, are there some practical tips or tools that you have for dealing with a panic attack? It, it, it's tough, man. I, I do still get them, to be honest. Um, thankfully, not as much as I once did because that was literally hell on earth to, to not have any control over that. I mean, for, for people who have never experienced a true panic attack, it is, it's just awful. And, and I, I don't know where it ranks in the worst feelings in the world, but for me, it's pretty high up there. Um, I mean, you literally feel like you're going to die and, uh, it is, it's a, just an awful feeling. So I still do, I deal with panic today a little bit. Um, you know, after a lot of work, it's, it's down, you know, probably 98% of what it once was, but I deal with a lot when I sleep. And I think the reason is because we're obviously existing in our subconscious when we sleep, not in our consciousness, in our conscious mind. And so because of that, we're accessing all sorts of shit that we don't access otherwise. And, and, and I probably have, even, even despite the work I've done, 
I have all sorts of demons and stuff probably still locked up in there that are kind of coming out when I'm, you know, vulnerable or sleeping or whatever. And so, you know, for me, I think that it's just, you know, I've been through it so many times that I can, I can logic my way out of it a little bit. I can say, listen, this is just a panic attack. You're not, you're not actually dying. I know it feels like you are, but you're not. Um, I, I, you know, I, I know that it will go away. I know that standing up and turning lights on and walking around and breathing and all those things help. Um, having a breathing regiment is really important, you know, with whatever that is for each person. Um, you know, because a lot of the time it is your heart, you know, racing and that pumps all these, you know, chemicals through your body that can contribute to it. So being able to regulate all of that is incredibly important, but also very, very challenging. And, um, and for me, I think it's, it's again, just reflecting on like, you've been through this before, you know, what comes next and just working your way through it instead of subscribing to it and kind of grabbing onto it, like we are, which is our tendency to do, um, and believing in that, it, you know, it might be the last thing you ever feel because that is, you know, that's what it does feel like at the time. And so, you know, I, I try to go through all of those kind of relaxation techniques when, when those, when that does happen to me. Um, but to me, a, a lot of that is a bit of patchwork. I think no matter what your level of resources, no matter what your level of access is to these therapies, there are basics you can do. Um, you know, there, there are, you know, free or inexpensive or, or low burden, you know, ways to get, you know, therapy or at least learn some techniques. There are easy ways to get breathing techniques. I mean, that stuff is pretty, you know, available. And I think that everyone should have some of those, those tools in their toolkit if they deal with stuff like that. Last question, John, because I always imagine that there's one person listening in who may be on the precipice of ending their life. Mm. Before you kill yourself, what would you say to them? Oh, Christ, that's a that's a big question. Um, you know, I, I've I've dealt with this once. I actually had a friend call me once and say that they were. Uh, it wasn't a close, close friend. It was somebody who I've known. It was actually through the entrepreneurial world and who told me that things were going so badly to them that they were, you know, that, that it, they were more inclined just to end it than to deal with kind of the situation they had got themselves in. And, um, it was very pragmatic that they weren't even that like upset by it. They just kind of said like, it's over. You know, I, I've, I've, I lost the, the, the war and, and it's over. Um, and it's a, it's a tough, I can't, I mean, I've never been in that position, so I can't say how tough it is, but I can certainly empathize and I can imagine how tough it is. And it was a tough phone call to get because you, you do wonder what to say and you wonder, um, uh, what, what you could possibly do as somebody that is, is now in a position to potentially save or not save somebody's life. And the only thing that I could unequivocally say to them is that, things will invariably get better because if, if you are at that lowest point and I've been at pretty low points, never that exact one, but probably ancillarily as low. Um, you, you do have to realize that if you at that low point, the only direction is up and the world does change. Life does change. And invariably things, if you give it time, which is the only component you have control of at that point, things will improve. And there's a lot of people, whether it feels like it at the moment or not, that do love you, that do care for you. Um, and whatever you've convinced yourself of that it is over or nothing is worth it, it's just simply, you know, likely not true. 
and there's probably a lot of value and an opportunity in in seeking out whatever it is you feel like you're missing at that moment. And then you'll probably, you know, again, I can't speak for everybody. I can't speak every situation, but you'll probably be um, extremely surprised at, at how much there actually is out there for you. If, if you can kind of work your way out of the mindset that there is nothing left. And, and as somebody who's seen a lot of stuff in their life, I mean, I, I ran a nonprofit organization and I've been around the world. Um, and I've, I've seen kids dying of disease and starvation. I've seen animals that have been tortured. I've seen, I've seen things that are just not the nicest net seen, you know, the, I've seen the byproduct of natural disasters and, and horrible, horrible, horrible things that, that are, probably some of those things that haunt my dreams in the night, even in literally the most dire circumstances, there is always a light in the tunnel. There is always a, a better situation that can be had. And, and again, this is, you know, it's, it's a, it's a bit of a big question to try to give blanket advice to somebody who might be feeling that way. But, but what I would hope that people can realize is that there's, there's always, you know, something that, that can be, um, you know, can be sought after and can be improved in that situation. John Roa, thank you so much. Thank you so much, listeners, for tuning in. Remember, this podcast is not a substitute for you going to get help, for you calling the 1-800-SUICIDE or 1-800-273-TALKS. You can always go to thrivewithleo.com for one-on-one coaching with yours truly. Thanks a lot, John. Leo, thank you. Thanks.